Why do we have what we have, and why do we do what we do? For Charles Spurgeon, the answer is, for Christ's sake. For Christ's sake is God's argument for mercy, and it is our reason for service. This is the proposal that he makes in a sermon preached on the Sunday morning of 12th of February, 1865. It was preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Newington. Its title is For Christ's Sake, and that's also its text taken from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. That sermon is our featured sermon this week as we work our way through our next block of sermons from the heart of Spurgeon. This week we're reading 612 through to 618, and this is Sermon 614, For Christ's Sake. If you want to know more, please find us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon, or you can sign up to a weekly newsletter which includes a PDF of the featured sermon each week from mediagratii.org slash podcasts, and you can follow us to the heart of Spurgeon, and there you can sign up. So next week we'll be reading, uh, the next batch we'll be reading from uh, 619 through to 625 and our featured sermon will be 620 and that's a warning against hardness of heart, Hebrews 3.13. But for today, back to Christ's sake, uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32 And this, says Spurgeon, is the only argument which can prevail with God in prayer, whether that prayer comes from saint or sinner. Why? Because Christ is the one only channel of communication between a loving Father and his elect people. He is the appointed mediator in his meritorious and glorious person. The Father gives us no privilege except through his only begotten, nor are we looked upon as accepted or acceptable, except as we stand in and through our Lord Jesus, accepted in the Beloved, perfect in Christ Jesus. It is, says Spurgeon, the one unbuttressed pillar upon which all prayer must lean. Take this away, and it comes down with a crash. Let this stand, and prayer stands like a heaven-reaching minaret, holding communion with the skies. And so we come back to these two basic proposals, that for Christ's sake is God's argument for mercy, and it is our reason for service. And in this sermon, uh, Spurgeon has quite an interesting uh, structure. Uh, He's got the two main points that he's making, God's argument for mercy and our reason for service. And then uh, he's quite orderly, Uh, in stating what he's doing and then doing it. So under God's argument for mercy, he tells us we're going to look at the force of this motive, then some qualifications for it, and then with regard to our reason for service, he says, I'm going to give two or three hints as to what kind of service may be expected of us, then a little exhortation by way of stirring us up to do this service for Christ. And under each of those, uh, so you've got the main headings, Then you've got the subheadings, and each of those subheadings has a number of uh, leading thoughts or sub-subheadings that follow on. So you could really write out a skeleton of this sermon with those two main headings, uh, having the the two subheadings under each of them, and then this series of leading thoughts. And if you're a preacher, uh, that's uh, one of the ways that Spurgeon preaches with minimal notes. 
that kind of orderliness, that kind of clarity, that kind of structure enables him to hold the sermon together in his heart as he's preaching it and to move smoothly and effectively from one point to the other, building his argument as he goes. So then what is this argument? What is this uh, sequence? What's this developing force? Well, first of all, then, God forgives us for Christ's sake. That is the Lord's argument for mercy. And the force of this motive is spelled out under a number of different headings. The first thing, says Spurgeon, which moves us to do anything for another's sake, is his person with its various additions of position and character. And he talks about men like Napoleon or Alexander, whose personal charisma moved others to uh, to act on their behalf. Some men then have a charm about them which enthralls the souls of other men who are fascinated by them and count it their highest delight to do them honour. But Christ, says Spurgeon, if you contemplate the person of Christ, you see that his charms as far exceed all human attractions as the sun outshines the stars. And so with regard to, to the Father, here is the beloved Son. Furthermore, the second reason, the second uh, force that we have in this motive is the near and dear relationship that is sustained. So Jehovah loves the Son incarnate. And that dear Son of his, for our sakes, left the starry throne of heaven, became a man, suffered, bled and died. And when we come to mercy's bar, bringing with us Christ's own promise, the Eternal Father sees Jesus in our eyes, bids us welcome to mercy's table and to mercy's house for the sake of him who is his only begotten Son. So when we're asking the Lord for mercy for the sake of his Son, we're pleading not only the excellence of Christ's person, but we're also pleading the relationship that he sustains to his Heavenly Father. Then you've got the worthiness of the person and of his acts. And I think to some extent here Spurgeon's developing or building on the first point. I'm not sure there's uh, the biggest difference between his, his first and his third uh, sub-headings sub here. But his point is that this is uh, worthiness, this is an honoured man, that God was just in punishing guilt in the person of man's representative, Jesus of Nazareth. God is gracious in accepting every believer for the sake of Jesus Christ. Who then is the man in whom that, that justice and that mercy are going to meet? Who is the one who is worthy in what he, who he is and what he's done of being the one in whom these attributes of God meet and are magnified? O oh God, says Spurgeon, your son has brought back what he did not take away. He has taken the prey from the mighty and the lawful captive he has delivered. Like another David, he has snatched the sheep from the jaw of the lion and delivered the lamb from the paw of the bear. Every wound which the Saviour endured upon the cross, every stroke which he felt in Pilate's hall, every drop of blood which he sweat in Gethsemane, strengthens the plea for Christ's sake. So you're thinking not just of the person that he is, but the worthiness of that person and his acts. And then he builds on it again. 
If any stipulation has been made, then the terms for his sake become more forcible because they are backed by engagements, promises and covenants. So uh, a stipulation is a, a condition or a requirement. It's an and in this case, solemn promises have been exchanged. Christ has undertaken to act as our substitute. And so to ask that something be done for his sake is to hang upon the engagements and the promises and the covenants that he himself has made on behalf of those who come to God relying upon him. So Spurgeon asks, if, if Christ has done what he has done, if, if he's fulfilled those prophecies, if he's undertaken that work, if he didn't suffer for sin, where's the deliverance for a soul of Adam born? Was his, was his work a farce or was it reality? No, Christ has accomplished these things. And not only are there engagements and promises and covenants, but it's Christ's own wish that the blessing should be granted, the boon should be bestowed. And it's been repeatedly and earnestly expressed. How glad we ought to be to think that Christ, when we plead his name, never tells us that we're going too far and taking liberties. No, beloved, if I anxiously ask for mercy, Christ has asked for mercy for me long ago. So Christ never hears us take his name and say that that's in vain, that that's uh, uh, pointless, that that's uh, going to excess, that we're depending on him too much, we're asking more than we're entitled to receive. No, he lives to make intercession for us, our supplications become his, our desires when they are carried up and impressed by the Spirit are his desires. Now, says Spurgeon, if all of that is what gives force to this plea that we should obtain mercy for Christ's sake, he wants to number out some other qualifications of this plea by way of comfort to trembling seekers. So here's that pastoral touch again. You may not find it easy to believe this. You may still come with anxiety and distress. So remember that this motive is with God a standing motive it cannot change because Christ's work is completed and done because he's risen again from the dead. As long as you are in this world, for Christ's sake is a standing reason for mercy. Furthermore, it is a mighty reason, not just for God to forgive little sins. Uh, that would be a slur upon Christ as though he deserved but little. The greatness of Christ gives you a great reason, a mighty reason. The deeper your sin, says the preacher, the more is Christ's merit exalted above the heavens when Jehovah forgives you all your iniquities. So think not little of Christ. He says, I don't want you to think little of sin, but still think more of Christ. Sin is finite. It is the creature's act. Christ is infinite. He is omnipotent. Whatever then your sin may be, Christ is greater than your sin and able to take it away. So, don't diminish sin, says Spurgeon. Treat sin for the awful, dreadful, horrible thing that it is. But let even the awfulness of sin serve to magnify the excellence of the Christ whose sacrifice is the means of forgiveness for that sin. Furthermore, it's a clear and satisfactory reason. Spurgeon says, I was almost going to say, it's a reasonable reason. It appeals to your own common sense. Can't you see how God can be gracious to you for Christ's sake? It, doesn't it, isn't it obvious, we might almost say? It's, it's, 
it's it's proper. It's 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 just right. It's it's the way it should be. He's entitled to 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 bestow these things, and we're entitled to ask for them because of him. And then it's applicable to your case. It's just what you need. And again, he's building on his previous arguments. The more sin I have, the more glorious will the merit of Christ seem to be, when in opposition to all my unworthiness, it brings me pardon and eternal life and takes me to the enjoyments of his right hand. Christ is precisely what I need. So do this, sinner, says the preacher. Take Christ in your arms and say, for Christ's sake. The whole pith of the gospel lies here. This is the essence of the thing. All true theology comprehended in this, for Christ's sake. Substitution, saving the innocent, saving the guilty through the innocent. Substitution, blessing the unworthy through the worthy. Do try this plea, poor soul, and I will warrant you that before long you shall find peace with God if you can understand the power of this argument. And he concludes that first main point, the argument that we have for mercy with God is for Christ's sake by enforcing that this is the only motive, the only motive which can ever move the heart of God. This is the provision that God himself has made. This is the door that God has opened. This is the channel which the Lord has provided through which his mercies flow. And so if you are to come and receive divine mercy, it must be by God's appointed means you have a plea, but you have no other plea than this. For Christ's sake, have mercy upon me. And now, and this is a typical Spurgeon transition, He's very, very good at uh, applying the same principle various ways to different cases. Here, the great distinction, the sinner and the saint. So if we have come to Christ in this way, pleading for mercy and found mercy from God for Christ's sake, this then becomes also the believer's great motive for service. Knowing that God blesses for Christ's sake brings us to God through Christ, but doesn't leave us presuming or uh, careless or with the kind of gratitude that says, well, that's that and I don't need to worry about anything else then. No. What kind of service is expected of the man who serves for Christ's sake? And what kind of exhortation is appropriate? Well, says Spurgeon, avenge his death. On whom? Upon his murderers. Who were they? Our sins. Our sins. The very thought of sin having put this Jesus to death should make the Christian hate it with a terrible hatred. Now, this Jesus, see how Spurgeon is using all the same weight of argument, the excellence of the person, the worthiness of of the the God-man and his acts, his standing with God. And he's effectively now putting all that weight upon the next argument. If sin was the reason why Jesus died, if sin, as it were, were the knife that was thrust into his heart, how you should hate that sin that brought to death the Son of God. Says Spurgeon, when I recollect that my sins tore my Saviour's body on the tree, took the crown from his head and the comfort from his heart, and sent him down into the shades of death, I vow revenge against them. 
So when you think these my sins, these were the things for which Christ was put to death, we should hate them and we should do all we can to slay them. And then further, the Christian is expected to exalt his master's name and to do much to honour his memory for Christ's sake. Is this why we serve? Do we want to do all that we can for the honour of Jesus Christ? Is our esteem of him such that nothing is too much, nothing is too far, nothing is too great? God helping us to say we wish to honour our Saviour. And then it should be the motive to fill us with intense sympathy with him, to bring us into step with him. He has many sheep, some wandering. Let's go after them for the shepherd's sake. He has pieces of money which he has lost. He's taking up the language of that three-part parable in Luke. Pieces of money which he's lost. Let us sweep the house and light our candles. Seek diligently till we find them. For Jesus' sake. He has brothers playing the prodigal. Let's seek to bring them back for Christ's sake. He says, oh brothers, you who are doing nothing for Christ, who come here and listen to me, who sit at his table and take the bread and wine in remembrance of him, what will you do when your master comes, when you have to confess that you did nothing for him? Your love was of such a sort that you never showed it. You talked of it, but you never gave to his cause. You never worked for his name. Out on such love as that. Spurgeon saying, if, if, if this is the Christ who's loved us, if this is the Christ for whose sake we've obtained mercy, if this is the Christ who's called us into his kingdom and glory, shouldn't our hearts beat in time with his? Shouldn't our appetites rise with his? Shouldn't our labours chime with his? Don't we want to see his glory accomplished? And then, by way of exhortation, you, and again, so often we say, exhortation? What was that we just done? No, says Spurgeon, I want to lift you higher still, clear as the sound of a trumpet, startling men from slumber, bewitching as the sound of martial music to the soldier when he marches to the conflict, ought to be the matchless melody of this word, for Christ's sake. And he, he brings uh, three contrasts, uh, four contrasts rather, uh, sorry, three contrasts and, and, and one example. So he's asking now, what do people suffer for the sake of philosophy, for discovery and for false religion? What waste of health, what wearing out of days and nights, what spending of the last farthing to make uh, scientific attainments to unravel the mysteries of the universe that have brought nothing more than the the honor of learned approval and conscious power academic applause we might say the martyrs of science are innumerable or what have men done for discovery's sake by way of traveling how far have they gone how much have they suffered what sacrifices have they made in order to advance the boundaries of geographical knowledge conquering famine cold and peril and shall the inquisitiveness of mankind prove a stronger motive than God-given love to Jesus? Or what about false religion? And he concentrates on uh, Islam or Mohammedanism and <clears throat> the, uh, the, the antagonism of, uh, and the, the zeal of the Islamic warrior. 
And then he moves on to 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 the Hindus and the 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 car of Juggernaut, the, the this god whose vehicle just broke everything that went before it. Those who give themselves to die by Gunga's stream. And Spurgeon is contrasting then the the zeal that is shown for false religion with some of its its anger and its ugliness. And he's saying, now if that's the zeal that men and women show for such as that, if there are martyrs to fanaticism and deception, what about our attitude to the truth of Christ as he's made known by God through the Spirit? Think of what men suffer for philosophy or science. Think of what they suffer for discovery. Think of what they do for false religion. What do we do for Jesus Christ? And then the positive contrast. Consider the heroic struggles of the Lord's people. And here we turn to the brightest page of the world's annals. For there are some who have felt the force of this argument, who have found it their motive for sacrificial service. And they have done what they have done, suffering and even dying, for Christ's sake and for Christ's sake alone. And it has not been then for their own exaltation, not been for the applause of the academy. It has not been so that their names might go down in history. It has not been for some uh, angry or ugly uh, idol of the world. It has been for the Lord of glory and for the honour of him in his in His majesty and in his excellence. And so says Spurgeon, what have you and I ever done? And note that he puts himself in our bracket and we might say oh you could take yourself out and the question would be that much more forceful but the point is that the preacher feels himself to be one who is under the weight of this argument oh pygmies he says dwarfs sons of nobodies our names will never be remembered what have we done preached a few times but with how little fire prayed at certain seasons, but with what little passion, talked now and then to sinners, but with what half-heartedness, given to the cause of Christ, but seldom given till we denied ourselves and made a real sacrifice, believed in God at times, but oh, with what unbelief mixed with our faith, loved Christ, but with what cold, stolid hearts? For Christ's sake, do you feel the power of it? Then let it be like a rushing mighty wind to your soul to sweep out the clouds of your worldliness and clear away the mists of sin. And so again, here you feel the weight of the majesty that was set before us in the first part of this sermon, now being brought to bear upon us personally that we, with shame of face, might say before God, we have not lived for Christ's sake, not served for Christ's sake, not loved for Christ's sake, not sacrificed for Christ's sake in the way of which he is worthy. And remember, the point of this is not just to guilt you into some kind of effort. It is to lift your heart in willing obedience to say, yes, he loved me and gave himself for me. There's a horrible legal spirit sometimes that can hear such a sermon as this and rather than rising to the glory of Christ, feels this as a rod with which the, the, the Christian is being beaten. 
And, and, I, and I do think so often the problem lies in the disposition of the hearer. For if we grasped Christ, I'm not saying that preachers preach him as we should. I'm not suggesting that we, we, we always get our exhortations and our encouragements in the right pitch and tone. But the point is, if this is Christ, if this is the Son of God who came in the flesh and lived and died for us, if this is an argument that, that reaches the ears of the Lord of hosts and brings forth his willing mercy, shouldn't it have an impact upon our souls that we would say, if I have received him, what will I give for him? And so says Spurgeon, how much do you owe to my Lord? Has he ever done anything for you? Has he forgiven your sins? Has he covered you with a robe of righteousness? Has he set your feet upon a rock? Has he established your goings? Has he prepared heaven for you? Has he prepared you for heaven? Has he written your name in his book of life? Has he given you countless blessings? Has he a store of mercies which eye has not seen nor ear heard? Then do something for Christ worthy of his love. Wake up from natural sleepiness, and this very day, or ever the sun goes down, do something in some way by which you shall prove that you do feel the power of that divine motive, for Christ's sake. May God accept you, and bless you, dear friends, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, you may not have much of the day left when you listen to this, or you may be right at the beginning of the day, but even if it's moments perhaps minutes or, or hours, shall we not then, for Christ's sake, do what we might? Spurgeon closes this particular sermon quoting a hymn that brings this to bear upon our hearts. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? His dying crimson, like a robe, spreads o'er his body on the tree, then am I dead to all the globe, and all the globe is dead to me. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I hope again today you've got some sense of why we're listening to and working through sermons that come from the heart of Spurgeon that a sermon like this reveals the man's soul, a man taken up with God in Christ, who's received mercy for Christ's sake, and so is determined to serve for Christ's sake. So do please join us again on another occasion. Listen to us next week uh, as we look at Sermon 620, A Warning Against Hardness of Heart. My name is Jeremy Walker. It's my privilege to work through these things with you and I hope that you will join us again in the future. God bless until then and let's go forth and serve for Christ's sake.